0: 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, you know that uh, we have been in the book of Ephesians, and so if you're a guest with us today, it may surprise you that we're in the book of 1 Peter. So let me give you a little bit of the context as to why we are here. Uh, We have been talking about uh, a massive thing that God has been doing through the work that his son Jesus Christ accomplished, through his obedient life and his sacrificial death, on the cross. And what he accomplished was the making of a cosmic peace. We use the word shalom for that. And we went all the way back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9, and we noted that this was something, this was a plan that God has been at work in for a very long time. That through the ministry that Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, would accomplish through his life and through his death, God was restoring the entire universe, things that are in heaven and things that are on earth, to the way they were when he originally created them and declared that they were good. And so this, is, this work that Jesus is accomplishing is a display of three things. It is a display of God's wisdom his ability, and his capacity to do this. It's a display of his power. The fact that not only can he do this, but he actually is doing it. And it is also a phenomenal display of his mercy and his grace that comes out of his nature, his heart, his love. So these three things, God's wisdom, God's power and God's mercy and grace are amazingly displayed in God's ability to bring peace, to bring shalom to the universe. And he is doing this in the presence of cosmic evil beings who are in the spiritual realm and we met those beings in the book of Job chapter 1. And he is putting those evil forces to open shame by this public display of his ability to bring shalom. And the shalom that he will one day bring to the universe exists right now in a particular group of people. And that is the people that he has brought out of darkness into light that he took out of death and blindness and quickened them and opened their eyes. This was a group of people who were far off and he has brought them near. He has adopted them into his very own family and he has formed them into a community of people and he has given that community of people to his son for his son to lead. And that group of people is called the church. And by the time we get to Ephesians chapter five, he has been telling, Paul has been telling these people what they should look like and how they should live in their everyday life in order that they would be able to display the wisdom and the power and the mercy and grace of God in this present age. And at the end of chapter 5, he gets very specific and he starts talking about what this should look like in our own households. Because we are members of the household of God, that should be reflected in how our own households are carried out and so we talked for a Sunday about what that should look like on a big scale and then we have been making our way through the individual members of a Greek or Roman household and what Paul has to say about them he has things to say to the husbands who are the heads of those homes he has things to say to the parents of the children in those homes. He has things to say to the children in those homes. He has things to say to those who serve and those who lead in those homes. And this morning, he has something to say to the wives, because that's where Paul started. Now, last week, we talked about what it would what wisdom God had for a wife, a Christian wife, living in a Christian home, where she wanted to be a part of what it looked like to display shalom in that home. And we traced Paul's uh, teaching to her out in three ways. Paul said to her, you need to support and follow your own husband's leadership as he follows Christ. And we traced that out in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 24. And then we noted that Paul also had something to say, to the Colossian church that sort of ties into this. So you need to support and follow your own husband's leadership as he follows Christ, but also strive to make it easy for your husband to love and serve you. And we looked at Colossians 3.19 for that. And then we went to Titus chapter two and we looked at verses one through five where Paul uh, said to Titus, have the older women teach the younger women to love and serve Christ by loving and serving those in their own households, namely their husband and their children. So that's where we ended last Sunday. And I left you with the recognition that there is a fourth text that speaks to this topic. And it is like this. What is a Christian wife to do when she is in... A difficult marriage. What is a Christian wife to do when she is married for however reasons it happened? What is she to do when she is married to a man that is disobedient to the gospel? And Peter has amazing help for a sister in Christ who is under that load. Now, I want to be very careful this morning as we look at this text because the last thing I want to do is make it even harder for a sister in Christ who is under that load. I mean, it's hard enough, isn't it, when we are both believers and we're both striving to serve the Lord, and we're both trying to be obedient to God, and we fail and our flesh gets in the way. It's hard enough to do marriage in that way. But can you imagine the unbearable way that is on some of our sisters when they are married to a man who is disobedient to the gospel? He's unsaved. He is completely disregarding the demand of the gospel to believe, And he is in disobedience to the implications and the commandments that are in that gospel. So Peter has some amazing help for our sisters in Christ who are like this. And we all need to hear this because it will help us know how to pray together. It will help us know how to encourage. It will help us know how to support those in our congregation who God has allowed and God is using in that kind of a marriage so how do we go about this well let's begin first of all by looking at the surrounding context that peter wants all believers to know so when you come to first peter peter is writing to believers who live in pagan cities there is a surrounding pagan context to all that peter has to say they are living predominantly in five roman provinces and Peter names them in the very beginning of the book. So if you go up to chapter 1, verse 1, these, these believers who are getting this instruction are living in five Roman po- uh, provinces named Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You say, where in the world are those? I don't recognize any of those names. How many of you have ever been to Asia Minor? Or how many of you have ever been to Turkey? Anybody been there? All right, so numbers of you have been there. Most of you have been at least familiar with where Turkey is on your map. Some of you may have ancestors that came from that part of the world. That is exactly the region of the world where the people that Peter was writing to lived. They lived in cities that were in these Roman provinces that were marked by lifestyles that were completely different than what the gospel called for. In chapter 4, verse 4, Peter actually uses a very descriptive term to describe what these believers actually were surrounded by. They were surrounded by something that he described this way, a flood of debauchery, a river, a flood of wickedness that threatened to overwhelm all of their good intentions to live for Christ and to live in ways that please the Lord as opposed to pleasing their old nature. And if you go to chapter 4, well, let, let's just do that very quickly. Turn to chapter 4, and, and let's see what this flood of debauchery actually in, it looked like, what it, what, it, what it was. Because we don't really talk that way today. You know, we don't walk around and say, hey, how'd you survive the flood of debauchery this week? That, that's not how we talk to one another. That's not what we think about but it is exactly what Peter wants you to envision when he thinks about what these believers were in. And so he uses six terms to describe what he means, or to identify rather what he means when he talks about a flood of wickedness or a a river of wickedness, a flood of debauchery. Look at verse three. For the time that is past suffices. In other words, your old life was long enough. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, so what do they want to do? They want to live in sensuality, in passions, in drunkenness, in orgies, in drinking parties, and in lawless idolatry and If you take these six terms, they they sort of fall into three categories: a, a flood of wickedness that was surrounding all of these believers is described as Immoral behavior, sensuous sexuality, and unbridled lust. It's described as intemperate behavior, out of control behavior, drunkenness, orgies, parties that were marked by carousing and drinking. And then it's described as idolatrous behavior that was prohibited by God, the worship of pagan idols the worship and the veneration of pagan leaders like the emperor. There would be cities where there would be an occasion during the course of the regular civil unfolding of society where the people would be expected to make an offering to pour out a libation and venerate the emperor as the god or a god, the god of the city or the the man god of Rome and then there would be often defiling practices that were involved in pagan worship because in the ancient world in these five cities religion was a part of the fabric of everyday life if you went to work you probably worked for somebody who had a patron god and you were as a worker expected to honor and to venerate that patron God. If you had a family member that was getting married, often they would do so at a temple, and you would go to that temple, and you would honor that God in that marriage, and then you would sit down, and you would have a feast in that temple, in one of the feast rooms, and you would eat food that had been offered to that God. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, had very, very specific things to say about how a believer was to handle all of that idolatry and all of the tentacles that came out of that. So, this was the behavior that was common in these five provinces. And it was what was expected to be a part of the daily life of the Gentiles that lived in those cities. It involved all kinds of things. It was part of the civil life of a person. It was part of the social life. It was part of the economic life. It was part of the personal entertainment and pursuit of pleasure life that went on in those cities. And if you go back into Roman times and you just start looking at how life happened, you would be shocked at how much of this went on. And what was shocking to people who lived in the middle of that river of wickedness was when somebody would turn away from all of that. And they would turn away from all of those gods and all of that practice and they would follow another god named Jesus. It was absolutely shocking. It produced perplexity in the hearts of the observers, and it actually produced animosity that resulted very often in verbal revilements and in, in, in horrific persecution. Christians paid a high price for living a holy life. So, what would God expect from a Christian living in this kind of a city? What would He expect from a Christian wife who lived in a city like this, surrounded by a culture like this, married to a husband who was regularly and willingly and happily engaged in all of this. What would God expect of a Christian and what would he expect of a wife? And that's the second thing we want to look at this morning. There is this spiritual context, but there is a scriptural injunction. God actually has some advice And he gave it to Peter. And I use the word advice in a qualified way. When God gives advice, it's really not up for grabs. It's not up for debate. He is actually laying out the expectations that he has. So what does God expect? And so here's what happens. In chapter 1, verse 13, uh, Peter says this to people living in that kind of a context. Prepare intentionally and thoughtfully for spiritual conflict and the suffering that will surely come. Let me read you the text. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. There's an important word, your confident expectation. Set your hope fully on the grace, that's the, uh, the enablement, that will come. And that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first thing God says to people like this is prepare intentionally and thoughtfully for spiritual conflict and for the suffering that will surely come. The second thing he says to people like this is this. Set your confident expectation on the grace and enablement that comes from God. We saw that in the word hope in that text. Set your hope. Your expectation fully on the grace, the enablement that will come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, with those two sort of main ideas, Peter says, now let me give you a third expectation. Do not be conformed. Don't be shaped in the same way. Do not be conformed to your former behavior. What form of behavior? The six things that we just looked at that Peter describes as this flood of wickedness. Don't be conformed to those things. Instead, conduct yourself with reverence toward God who delivered you from that former way of life. So let me read you a text in chapter 1. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's going right back to the Old Testament Torah, and he's pulling that out as the reason for our behavior. And then he says this, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to everyone's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. There's another word we want to keep in mind, so hope and fear. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. And he's going to go on and talk about what actually delivered us was the precious blood that was shed by no one else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter says, don't be conformed to your form of behavior but conduct yourselves with reverence toward God who delivered you from all of that with his own death. And then he says this, number four, submit to all legitimate authority in ways that honor God and that respect them. Submit to all legitimate authorities in ways that honor God and respect them and do it without sinning. And I really want to make sure we catch that last little phrase. We submit to all legitimate authority in ways that honor God and respect them without sinning. And so chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 carry this instruction forward. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So submit to all legitimate authorities in ways that honor God and respect them without sinning. And then he says this, serve Christ wholeheartedly. Take your whole heart, this confident expectation, this reverence that you have for the God who bought you and purchased you, serve him with that whole heart that he has given you. Serve him wholeheartedly. In chapter 2, verse 16, Peter says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as the servants of God. And this means that when you do this, in a culture that is bound up to the degree that these five promises were in this flood of wickedness, you are going to pay a price. You are going to be reviled you are going to suffer persecution. And so that's the next thing Peter says, suffer patiently for righteous conduct. Be willing to suffer patiently for righteous conduct. And he talks about this in chapter two, verse 19. He says this, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God One endures sorrows. And he's not talking there about tears and emotional pain. He's talking there about physical suffering. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he says a very strange thing. For to this you have been called... to say to all of us and in general and then really to wives in this kind of a situation, do so for a worthy spiritual purpose. Do so for a worthy spiritual purpose. And you can see that in chapter two, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they are actually gonna accuse you of being the immoral person in their midst because you shame the gods. You dishonor the gods. You don't involve yourself in the civic responsibilities that the emperor demands. You are causing all kinds of trouble for your boss because the favor of the gods has departed because he's hired you and you don't worship them and you don't offer the sacrifices and you don't pray. You have brought all manner of trouble on your boss. You brought all manner of trouble on our city. You have brought all manner of trouble on our province. And and so this is the kind of thing that would be said about people Because they love God and they refuse to involve themselves in the behaviors that God prohibited. And God said to them, now you suffer the revilement that is coming your way for a good purpose. What's the purpose? So that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is saying this, there is coming a day when God is going to work And he's going to act. And when that act happens, when God works and when he acts, what these people have seen in you may bring them to a place where they will glorify the God they are currently reviling. That's a worthy purpose. All right, so that's sort of the big context that this instruction in chapter 3 lands it. It's this larger context in which the readers of 1 Peter are living in these five Roman provinces that are marked by these six uh, evils that are described as this river of wickedness, this, this debauchery that Peter describes, and they are called to live distinctly in every area of life. And Peter has just given to them this advice. But what does this have to do specifically for a Christian wife who is married to an unsaved man? And that's what we're going to see now in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6. through 6. So, so let's talk about the specific situation that she is in. And, and you find that situation right away in verse 1. Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands. This is not new. This is exactly what Paul has said to the Ephesians, and he's repeated this both to the Colossian believers, and he told Titus to make sure that older women taught younger women to do this. So that, now here's the new piece. So that even if some, the idea there is, there might be women who are married to some men who are like this. They do not obey the word, the logos. They do not obey the word. So with regard to her spouse, the woman that Peter is talking to is married to someone who has dismissed the gospel and is disobedient to God. He has dismissed the gospel. He may be actively disobedient to its demand to repent and believe and hostile to in his rejection of its claims. And he is disobedient to the God who gave that gospel. Now think about what that disobedience would look like. If you were married to a man like this, who rejected the gospel, he was hostile to its claims, who did he worship? He worshiped idols. This idolatrous worship would impact his work. We just talked about that. He would be expected to worship the gods of his business. And if he worked for somebody else or was in partnership with someone else, he was expected to honor the gods of that household and of that business. He would frequently be a glad participant in many of the social activities that went on in the culture around him that were often necessary for the advancement of his household or for the advancement of his business. And he would expect his wife to do the same. It would be unthinkable for his wife not to worship his gods. It would be unimaginable for his wife not to go to the temple and participate in the ceremonies that were so essential in his mind for the well-being, the economic well-being of the business, the, the social standing that he would have in the city, the possibility that he would rise up and, and have some office in the city, all depended on him doing the right things and being in the right places and going to the right ceremonies and the right uh, parties and all the things that went on, and his wife would be expected to do that. She would be expected to participate in idolatrous practices and immorality. In fact, she would be expected not only to participate, there would be times as sort of the mistress of the home or the household where he would say to her, we're gonna host a party and we're gonna bring the heads of the other houses in and this is what I want at the party and the party would be filled up with immorality and idolatry and intemperateness and this Christian wife, would be expected not just to attend, but to organize it and to host it. So what were her spiritual obligations? Well, as a Christian, Peter's already said, you have the same obligations that any other Christian would have living in that city. You cannot participate in idolatry. You can't be involved in idolatry. You can't participate in immorality. I mean, you cannot involve yourself with your husband in the sensuous licentiousness and the unbridled lusts that were so regularly a part of everything that happened in a city that was in one of these five Roman provinces. You could not join him in his intemperate activities, drunkenness and orgies and all kinds of licentiousness that went on at these parties. That was her spiritual obligation. And that had impact on her social standing. I mean, think about what this meant for a woman in a household like that. Her posture and her practice in all of this would actually be viewed as rebellion against her husband's authority. And his inability to subjugate her in these areas would bring great shame to him due to his apparent inability to keep his house under control. I mean, everybody in that city would would look at him and say, what is wrong with you? Your wife doesn't worship your gods. She doesn't participate in all of the activities that all of us expect you as part of your civic duty to do. And you... She never comes to all of the things that we expect our wives to be at. You have no ability to control your wife. This would bring great dishonor on a man like this. It would damage his reputation in the city, and it would actually potentially disqualify him from holding certain offices and receiving certain honors. That's why Peter says to a wife like this and to every Christian living in a city like this, Prepare intentionally and thoughtfully for the suffering that will come when you follow and serve God. All right, are we, do you see this? Are we clear on this sort of thing? All right, now, what is the spiritual objective for a wife like this? What's the spiritual objective for a wife like this? So let me read it to you in chapter 1 and see if you can pick it up. All right, here we go. Likewise, I'm sorry, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some, and we just talked about what these men would have been like, do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wife. So if you're just looking at that verse, 1 Peter 3, 1, 1, and you were were trying to figure out what does God intend to do through the life of a wife like this, married to a man like that, in that kind of circumstance, what would the objective be? I mean, Peter puts it right there, right? He, He literally says that they may be what? One. You know, the word there, is a word that means to persuade. It means to gain, to win over to a position or to a side. So so here's the picture. Her husband is actively disobedient to the gospel. He's openly hostile to its demands. She is in a place where she can't join him in his idolatry, she can't participate in his immorality, and she cannot be involved in the intemperate behavior that Peter's identified in chapter 4. And it has cost her husband because of that. And yet, she is called to win him. She's called to live in such a way to win him. Now, Peter could have said to her, why don't you just leave the marriage? Why don't you just leave the marriage? I mean, look at this man. You, you may have married him as an unsaved person. Remember how Greek and Roman marriages were, were done? They were arranged marriages, most of them. So maybe you found yourself in this and you had no ability to control it, but maybe you should just leave him. Maybe you should leave the marriage because this is this flood of wickedness isn't just outside in the city streets. It's every day in your home. Maybe you should leave it. And Peter doesn't do that. Peter does not encourage a Christian wife married to a man like this to abandon the marriage. In fact, he does the very same thing that Paul did to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says... To a Christian husband who's married to an unsaved woman or to a Christian woman who's married to an unsaved husband, don't depart. Now, if they choose to depart, that's, that's one thing, but don't depart. If they are willing to live with you, seize the opportunity, and then Paul is going to say... In a different way, the very thing that Peter is going to say, you have a tremendous opportunity if you will do something in that marriage to win that person to the gospel. So what is it that a Christian wife like this is supposed to do to counter the negative impact that her conversion to Christ would have on her husband's standing socially, civilly, economically and personally? What could she do? What could she offer that would be so compelling and so persuasive? And Peter's answer is a certain kind of beauty. There is a certain kind of beauty that the Spirit of God will enable a woman like this, if she's willing, to display over time that when God acts, will be so compelling to her husband that she will, will, she will win him. So, what is that beauty? And that's the fifth thing. There is a surprising strategy that Peter gives a woman like this, and it is this be subject to your own husband. Be subject to your own husband. Now, whoa, 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 Pastor Sam, hang on a second. Okay, you just spent a ton of time telling us about what Peter said to the believers in these five Roman provinces, and then you described this sort of river of immorality and debauchery and wickedness, and then you, you talked about how God told a woman she couldn't do, she told all believers and Christian wives that couldn't be involved in that, and now she's married to a, a, an unsaved man who, who is willfully involved in all of this, and now she's supposed to submit to him. And if you remember what I said to you, she is to submit to him without sinning. That's very, very important. God puts a boundary on all of our submission to any authority because he never gives us permission to sin in order to submit to any authority. Human authority. So let's talk about what a Christian wife must do. She must properly arrange herself under his leadership. She must follow his leadership without sinning against God. And there is a reason for this so that without words, she could win him to the word. In other words, Peter's sort of playing on the idea of word. There is a word from God, the gospel, and this husband is rejecting that word. You will not win him to that word with all of your little words. There is a word, however, that you can give him that will be so beautiful and so compelling, it will win him to that word. And that word is your word conduct there's something about your conduct that over a lengthy period of time when you consistently live in a certain way that will be compellingly beautiful now by the way can I just say this Peter is not telling a Christian wife that she cannot use any human words to talk to her husband about his sin or to talk to her husband about the gospel like why do you believe that I can't tell you Peter said I couldn't use any words that's not what Peter's saying. Peter is saying, you are never going to win the heart of a man who is captured by this blindness and this deadness by your own human words. There is going to have to be a compelling display of beauty in you that is going to go, wow, what, what, I, I cannot explain this. So it's certainly not telling you not to graciously appeal to your husband or encourage your husband to do what is right in the sight of the Lord. It's just acknowledging that that isn't going to be enough. There has to be a different kind of word. It's what they see in you more than what they hear from you that is going to win them. So what is the conduct that Peter is talking about here in this text? And it is in verse 2. When they see... Your conduct and your conduct is marked by two things. There are two words that describe your conduct. It is respectful and it is pure. When you live day in and day out with that unsaved husband who is in that flood of debauchery and your conversation, your life, your conduct is consistently pure, it is marked by a reverence for God and a respect for Him. It's morally pure. It's clean. It's motivated by a reverence to God that manifests itself respectfully to Him. And that's important. So, so let's make two observations here. Her reverence to God makes important moral, ethical, and spiritual boundaries around her obedience. She cannot obey an earthly authority that tells her to worship idols. She cannot follow and obey an earthly authority when he tells her to lie or to steal or to participate in an orgy or to involve herself in licentiousness. Her reverence for God boundaries all of that behavior out. And then her respect for her husband actually shapes her response to him in all of the areas where she can legitimately submit. The overarching posture of a woman married to an unsaved husband ought to be, I'm going to respect my husband and I'm going to follow his leadership, but I can't follow that leadership in the places where he's calling me or leading me to sin against God or against others. So her reverence to God boundaries her moral and spiritual and ethical life so that her conduct is pure. Her respect for God, her respect for her husband actually displays all of that in a particular way. So it ought to frame up how she normally lives in all of the days and in all of the ways that her husband is leading her where Does it doesn't involve a disobedience to God, and it also should flavor how she responds to her husband and how she presents herself to her husband when she has to disobey something he has called her to do that God prohibits. So, how should she go about doing this? I mean, this is all great, but how should she actually going, uh, go about rendering this kind of beauty? to her husband and so this is how she should do it you find this in chapter 3 verses 3 through 4 Peter says it's not by means of the outward beauty that perishes the physical beauty that that you you enhance by external adornment like things uh, like hair and jewelry and and all of these things that are external that fade away now Peter is not telling a woman she can't wear jewelry He's not telling a woman, you can't go and get your hair done. He's not saying those kinds of things. He's simply acknowledging that that if the beauty you're using to try to win your husband is that kind of beauty, it is going to be completely ineffectual in winning him for the gospel. There is a completely different kind of beauty that is called for. You take care of this beauty. But don't rest on your hope. Don't put your confidence in this beauty. There is an inner beauty that has to cultivate in you. And that beauty is a disposition that is gentle and gracious. It is marked by gentleness and graciousness. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit one that is not harsh, it is not argumentative, it is not rough, even in the face of rebuke, pressure, or revilement. And this conduct is not natural. And by the way, your husband knows that. When he sees a consistent display of this kind of beautiful conduct, coming out of a wife that is consistently respecting him in every place possible and then respectfully saying to him, I can't do that because of my worship to God and my obligations to God. There's something compellingly beautiful about that. You say, well, what? Isn't that just going to make him mad? And the answer is initially. But there's something he can't explain and what he can't explain is where that behavior comes from because it makes no sense how in the world given what i the pressure i am putting on her how is she not doing this why is she still in this marriage why does she still stay No matter how hard I push, she's so gracious, she's so kind, she's so respectful. Where is that coming from? And Peter's answer to that is at the end of verse 4, which is in God's sight, very precious. There is something that God is doing in this woman that brings him great joy and that he values highly and that is going to result in honor for this wife. So when you think about what God is calling this wife to do, we could summarize it this way. A Christian wife married to a difficult man who is disobedient to the gospel. Peter says this. You can sum it up this way. She is called to love and to serve Christ. She is called to love and to serve Christ by displaying the gospel to her husband by means of the consistent beauty of a pure life and a gracious spirit. She is called to love and serve Christ by displaying the gospel to her husband, and the way she's going to display it is by means of a consistent beauty that comes from a pure life and a gracious spirit, as she does what is good in spite of her fear. Um, we left this Christian wife that Peter's writing to, living in a culture that is literally being flooded with wickedness, what Peter called a flood of debauchery, married to a husband who is deeply enmeshed. He is deeply engaged in all of that. And he expects his wife to do the same. And one day, God did something in the heart of this woman. He opened her eyes, and she saw something that she had not seen before. She saw what Peter describes in 1 Peter, Paul describes in 2 Corinthians, she saw the glory of God in the face of somebody. She saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And all of a sudden, it was like blindness just went away. And she realized that everything she was hearing about this new religion, this new idea that Jesus of Nazareth had come And he was the son of God and that he had died, lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death and that he would give life to anybody who wanted it and he would give freedom from all of our sins and he would declare us righteous. All of a sudden, something that was completely unbelievable just months ago became not just believable, but but, but it was what she actually now believed. And we found that this woman now was in a very, very difficult place because she could no longer engage in all of the things that Peter prohibits in First Peter. She had joined a group of people, Christians, who were called to live distinctively, and she was in the difficult situation of not just having to do that in the larger context of the city she lived in. She now had to do it in her own home and in her own marriage. <clears throat> and so we've been talking about what that looked like. And I left you with a statement that I want to read to you again. Peter is telling a Christian sister like this that she is called to love and serve Christ by displaying the gospel to her husband. How is she going to do that? By means of the consistent beauty of a pure life and a gracious spirit. As she does what is good, what is right, in spite of her fear, all right? So that's where we left her. And you can imagine the kind of fear that would really be part and parcel of a Christian sister who all of a sudden is reading Peter and realizing what it means for her in her marriage. What is going to happen to me? What will be the outcome of this kind of life, And so she is going to need models. And that's the next thing that Peter does. He gives her a striking example. And instead of pointing her to all of the other women in Roman cities, in other words, don't go to what the cultural norms of a good wife look like in these five Roman provinces, Peter says there is another source that you should look to for what it should look like in your own life. And he talks about holy women who hoped in God. There's our word hope again. There are women and they were like this. They were holy. They had been made holy. They had been set apart by God. These were chosen women and and they did this. They hoped in God. And, And this confidence in God motivated them and enabled them to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, just like you are being called to submit to your husband. You are to give the same reverence and the same respect and the same followership that these women were giving to their husbands, even when their husbands led them in ways that created fear and possibly even danger for them. And there is not just this right model, but there is a right approach. Do what these holy women did. Arrange yourself under your own husband and follow his leadership respectfully without disobeying God. They did what was right in the sight of God. They did what was good, but they didn't allow fear to deter them or dissuade them from doing what was good. And there is a particular woman that Peter pulls out of that list of holy women and he says, now I want to give you a woman, I want to give you an example of a woman who had a lifelong model of this. A lifelong pattern of recognizing and respectfully accepting his leadership over her and it's like this. And So go back now to 2 Peter Chapter 3, verse 5, where this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And then he says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And the idea there is, is not so much that this is what she addressed him uh, by every time they walked, she woke up in the morning or she encountered him. There is a very particular time in their relationship. It's the only time in our Bible where we hear her say this, where she actually said it. But it actually sort of indicated her posture toward Abraham, that she identified him as her God-given leader. In Genesis 18, 12, we are actually brought into a circumstance where, where she actually uses this term. And this is a circumstance that would be very, very fearful for a 90-year-old woman who's married to a 100-year-old man who's already twice put her in a place of great danger. I mean, if you go back to Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah are just starting out. Abraham has received the call from God. He is on his way to the promised land, and they are on their way, and they go down to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, Abraham has a horrific fear crisis because he looks at Sarah, and she is stunning. And he recognizes that he's about to go into a country where the king... Has absolute authority over everybody and over everything, and he can immediately say, I want that woman. And if that woman was married, it was an easy fix kill her husband, and we are done. And so Abraham goes to Sarah and he says, Sarah, there is something that is true about us. You are actually my sister. Because my father is your father, we just have different mothers. So here's what we're going to do. When we get there, we're going to still be husband and wife. That doesn't change. But we're not going to let that be what we lead with. We're, people ask us, I'm going to tell them, you're my sister, and you're going to tell them, he's my brother. And, and we're not lying but that's because it's true, but that's what's going to happen. And so that's what they did. And so Pharaoh, being Pharaoh not knowing that Abraham had qualified sister and brother, said, oh, that's great. Come on in. Hey, we, we got stuff for you. And he starts showering Abraham with stuff, and he takes Sarah. And then God steps in. God acts, And he says, Pharaoh, if you touch her, I'm going to kill you. And like, whoa, 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 okay, I got it. You didn't tell me. Abraham, you did not tell me the whole story. Here, she's, hey, get back over here with him. And cows, cattle, whatever. You, and I mean, this is what happened. I'm, I'm sort of exaggerating a little bit, but I'll go back and read that narrative. Whew. God protected Sarah's morality. Her, she, he protected her in every way. And he rebuked her husband in the process of protecting her. And then in Genesis chapter 20, toward the end of her life, Abraham is back in the same story. I mean, back, they're, they're in a foreign territory. They're, they're ruled by a king named Abimelech. Abraham goes back to the same narrative, and the same thing happens. So consistently, God has interacted to protect Sarah and, and to keep her and preserve her, and she did what she could to respect her husband without sinning. And now we come to the place actually where she calls him Lord and she's overhearing a conversation that is happening inside a tent. And there are three angelic visitors that have come to see Abraham and and Abraham says uh, to them or they say to Abraham, Abraham, that promise God made you, he hasn't forgot it and we're here to tell you that this time next year, Sarah is going to not only be pregnant, she's going to give birth to the son of promise. Now think about that. Sarah is listening at the tent, at tent flap, and she hears this, and she laughs. Can I, can I just ask you, um, what would happen if you got a phone call from your 90-year-old mom, your kid's grandkids, your kid's grandmother, and, and she said, are you sitting down? Because dad and I have an announcement. You're going to have a little brother. What would you do? You're doing it right now. You're sitting right in the seats doing it, just listening to this hypothetical story. So let's not be too hard on Sarah. She's laughing at the sheer absurdity of a 90-year-old woman who's well past the ability of childbearing and a 100-year-old man who's well past the ability to bear children to actually do this. It's not just physically impossible it's, or humanly impossible, it's physically dangerous. Can you imagine the stress on Sarah's body and the danger this put her in. And yet, what did she do? She looked at her husband, who had received this promise, and she followed. And God protected and God preserved. And you know what God says about Sarah? Her gracious conduct was precious in the sight of God. It was precious in the sight of God. She did not fear legitimate fears. But she followed God by respecting and following her husband. And God kept his promise, and he honored her. You know, she shows up in Genesis 11 in the Hall of Faith, and she is celebrated by God for all of human history as a woman whose life is marked by a faith, a confidence in God that is praiseworthy. And that's exactly what Peter talks about. So let's wrap up by by just observing some special consideration for Christian wives who are called to do this. In following your unsaved husband, you must do what is good and right before the Lord. Look at verse six. And you are her children if you do good. You must do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. And then you must not let fear deter you from doing what is good and what is right before the Lord. You are her children if you do good and you do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, I need to give you an important word here because this text has often been misused. And it has put a very heavy burden on some of our Christian sisters who are in marriages and they have been taught that no matter what happens in that marriage, they have to stay in it and they have to submit. And I just want to be real clear with us as a church. That statement there, if you do good, is actually God saying to that woman and to all of us, you must do what is right. This text is not supporting the idea that a Christian woman or any woman is called to endure physical or sexual abuse. Peter prohibits this. Jesus died to deliver her from this, and the gospel is actually damaged by this. And certainly God is not pleased by this. So Christian wife, if you are married to a husband saved or unsaved, who is doing this. There's physical or sexual abuse to you or to your children. You cannot countenance that. That is not what this text is doing. There are actually two people in the Bible where you see something like this. In Esther chapter 1, there is a queen named Vashti. Her husband is the king. He calls her to come and present herself in a very immoral way in front of the entire court. And Vashti said what? No and it cost her. And then if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 25, there was a very wicked man who brought all kinds of danger and physical damage to his house by withholding something that was rightly due to David, and David got so angry he was coming to destroy the house, and Abigail, the wife, realized this, rose up and delivered her house. So I think those are examples that sort of need to shape the way we think when we come to this. So as a Christian sister, what is the outcome of all of this? And the answer is, God will sustain you. God will honor you. And there is a very high chance that you will win this man to the Lord. You say, well, how do you know that? There are examples throughout the Christian church of this very thing happening. And when you ask that husband, so what was it? that finally penetrated? What was it that reached you? He would look at you and he would say, I couldn't get away from the kindness and the graciousness and the sweetness of my wife no matter what I said to her, what I did, how harshly I I acted with her. I couldn't get away from the fact that this woman consistently displayed to me something I couldn't explain because I was married to her before she got saved and I know what she was like. And I just began to realize I needed what she had. And that brings us to this. As a church, we should consider these women who are in those marriages just like we would consider our own missionaries who are going to hostile places to take the gospel. They need the same kind of support. They need the same kind of care. And they need the same kind of love. Many of these women are very, very embarrassed to talk about their marriage. And they feel alone. They feel like second-class citizens in a church like this. When, in fact, they are gospel warriors that God has put in the hottest place of the battle because there's somebody He wants to win. And if we would see them in this way, it would change the tone. It would change not a whole lot of what actually happens, but it would change the context in how we pray for these women and how we support these women. And I want to encourage us to pray for them like that right now. Should we and shall we? Let's pray together.